Welcome to Decrypt, Asia's first blockchain and cryptocurrency podcast. I'm your host, Tushar. Each week, we take a deep dive into the Asian blockchain scene with investors, technologists, and industry insiders. Go to decrypt.asia to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram to join in the discussions. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Hi, Tushar. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into what you're up to these days, could you give us a quick introduction about yourself, how you came to be involved in the blockchain and cryptocurrency ecosystem? Yeah, right. So um, basically, I, I would like to claim credit that I, I kind of spotted the, the whole trend, but I really, I really can't because I, I didn't have anything to do with that. My, I, my brother, who's a, he's a millennial, and he, um, way back in about 2011, um, he actually uh, told me about you know, uh, Bitcoin and and that sort of thing. And he was mining it off his uh, GPU at the time. He had a whole gaming rig set up. And he was saying that, you know, you should take a look at this thing. It's going to be, it's going to be big really soon. And I obviously, you know, just like everybody else, you know, what is this thing? Digital code? How's this money? Yeah, it's a scam, you know, naturally. And, um, you know, but from there, I said, he kept, you know, badgering me. He said, you should really take a look at it. Just read it. Don't, you know, don't just dismiss it offhand. So I spent some time. I invested time to go and uh, read up about it. And then, you know, when I went down that rabbit hole, I, I just never really came out. You know, once I understood, you know, the, uh, the, the, the rationale behind it, once I understood the, the elegance of the math, um, I just kind of fell in love. And, and for me, for me when, I, when I first started, obviously, and even today, it was never really about the money or the, also the, the dollar value of, the, of cryptocurrencies and blockchain. It was just, I fell in love with the technology. And from there, it's just been sort of um, meeting people, going for meetups, and, and over the years, besides just uh, having a little bit of my own uh, part of uh, crypto, obviously, I, I sold some in the early days, uh, much to my regret. But, um, you know, it was just really being involved in the space, getting to know the people, and obviously, my background as a lawyer during the, the ICO uh, craze of 2017, that helped as well. And then and now, I've, I've moved on to actually... Um, become a general partner in a, a cryptocurrency quantitative trading firm. We've sort of run our own fund. And what we do is we do uh, quant trading strategies, which basically profit off the uh, inefficiencies in, in inherent in the cryptocurrency markets. All right. I mean, that's, I think that's a very good overview of, of what you do. And given your background as a lawyer, I think there's a, and also, a, uh, you know, since you're a partner at a fund now, I think there's a couple of interesting things that we can talk about during this discussion. So let's start sure. off with the fun stuff. Uh, regulations. <laughs> yes, uh, regulations. So, what do you? Um, what do you, I mean, in general, what do you make of the regulatory environment? You know, we've got the SEC, which has certain views. China has certain sure. views. Both sure, of which sure. are kind of the big dogs. And then there's places like Malta, Gibraltar, with their own views. So what do you? What do you make sure, sure. of all of this from a macro context? Well, obviously, when you're gonna when you're gonna have different regulatory frameworks in different jurisdictions and you know how globalized and how interconnected the world is especially when it comes to things like cryptocurrencies and blockchain which don't require uh, intermediary banks and don't require centralized institutions like for instance you don't need a, a new york banking relationship to pass through the value of bitcoin for instance um, you don't have to use the regular channels you're going to have what what has already been happening for, 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 for centuries, actually, uh, this whole thing about regulatory arbitrage, where companies now, which are, and, and especially blockchain and cryptocurrency companies, they're not tied down to necessarily any physical location. Sure, if you have a mining facility and stuff like that, you may be physically tied down, but the reality is, is that that's easily replicable in another jurisdiction. 
But more importantly, the, the big movers in the space, I would say, are sort of the, the protocol uh, developers and those people who are the traders, uh, the fund managers and stuff like that. And they can move. They're very mobile. They don't have to have their operations in any one jurisdiction. So when you see countries like Gibraltar and Malta, what they're probably doing is they're trying to, you know, the, the, these are tiny countries, um, not, not that Singapore is massive or anything, but, you know, um, in relation, even in relation to a tiny little country like Singapore, these countries are really, really small. They've got populations in the hundreds of thousands. And they are obviously trying to carve a, a niche for themselves uh, in the cryptocurrency space by providing sort of a conducive regulatory environment for cryptocurrency and or blockchain companies to come and develop their technology there. And I think it's a good idea. Um, and I think that if you look at it, the way sort of small nations like the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Antigua, St. Kitts and Nevis, uh, even Vanuatu for, for, that, for that matter, or Labuan, how they've sort of like, you know, they've taken the sort of disadvantages that they have, a small country with a lack of natural resources and stuff like that, and they've harnessed regulatory arbitrage for their advantage. So what we're going to do is we're going to see that there's, this will continue to happen unless uh, and until there is perhaps a greater, uh, like an in, in international standardization and harmonization of, of regulations with regards to uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain. But I don't think that's going to come anytime soon. Uh, you know, I, I, I could be wrong, but I, I doubt it because if we've looked in the financial services industry, for instance, um, we have regulatory arbitrage even to this day. Uh, there is a reason why companies choose to, to register themselves in Delaware or Jersey or Guernsey or any one of the other um, uh, sort of uh, jurisdictions where they are sort of more uh, tax sensitive, as, as, as you might say. So, and, and, that's, and that's what we're looking. And I think at least from, from Singapore's perspective, uh, when it comes to cryptocurrency, I have to say that the regulator, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has actually taken on a, a very enlightened approach where you want to make sure that you protect the, the most vulnerable and the weakest in your society from, from being uh, taken in by scams and, 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 and Ponzi schemes. And at the same time, you want to provide enough leeway and, uh, and a secure framework for companies who want to, to take that step to, towards innovation, towards fintech innovation, and to provide a very vibrant environment. And I think we managed to balance that really well. And I, I think that uh, it makes me proud to see that, that, our, uh, that uh, Singapore has actually stepped up and, and taken the lead and despite being um, relatively small uh, compared to some of the other players, we are actually the world's third largest jurisdictions, uh, jurisdiction for ICOs in 2017, and we continue to grow. And I think uh, we've actually overtaken to come up in uh, either number one or number two this year, which to yeah. me is, is a step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I concur and echo your thoughts about the approach uh, that the MES has taken. And obviously having worked with the MES quite closely as part of my day job, I, I yeah. generally think that, you know, I think the approach that they're taking is the right way to go ahead. Um, what do you make of ETFs and SEC's stance on ETFs? Do you think it's, uh, this is all just politics or there's actually substance and rationale behind why ETFs are being rejected? Well, it could be a combination of reasons. Um, let's not forget that, you know, to get anything done in, in Washington, you need a, a pretty powerful lobby. And right now, the cryptocurrency um, industry just is not, it's simply not organized enough and nor is it well-funded enough to sort of match up with the banking services lobby, which, which is an extremely powerful lobby up on Capitol Hill. And I know for a fact that um, banks and, uh, and other you know, institutional 
inst uh, financial institutions are looking at the space. Now, the regulations are not clear. Uh, and as you know, these sort of regulations take time. And the lobbies are powerful. So it's not in their interest for the banking lobby as well, or the financial services lobby, to have things like a, 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 Bit, a Bitcoin ETF or a crypto ETF or an Ethereum ETF when they're not ready to play. So I actually think that there, there is a political element to why ETFs are being rejected. Uh, and I don't think that as a community as a whole, the crypto community or the blockchain community should be too obsessed by this. You know, um, everybody is sort of, uh, I mean, especially, um, well, we are agnostic to market uh, movements. So whether or not the price of USD rises or falls against uh, a cryptocurrency, because we are a startup fund, we, don't, we are kind of agnostic to that. But for the long funds or, or people who have gone long in USD terms on, on crypto, there's going to be um, quite a bit of despair, especially because the last, I mean, the last uh, three quarters, you know, three quarters of a year have been rough in terms of the USD valuations of, of cryptocurrencies. So everybody's sort of like hoping that, okay, you know what, ETF is gonna be the next silver bullet. ETF is gonna be sort of our white knight and, and to save us. And once we have an ETF, the values are gonna go up again and, and we're gonna get another bull run like we saw in 2017. And I think as a community, we should move beyond that. We should, we should be mature enough to see that, you know what, um, that's not what we need guys. What we need is better technology. We need to build out the infrastructure. We need to improve adoption. Uh, we need to improve access and really clean up our reputation as, as an industry as a whole. You know, if, if we keep being associated with scams, if we keep being associated with volatility, um, you know, there, there, is, there, there is no, no value to, the, to that and, and we'll really be undermining ourselves. So, so that there is that. So I think you've, if I'm not wrong, you've helped out a couple of companies with their ICOs in the capacity of a lawyer. So how does a lawyer yes. approach a client who's doing an ICO? Well, back in, back in those days, um, it was relatively <laughs> straightforward. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I know I say back in those days, like it was years ago, but it, was, it wasn't actually that long ago. But at least back then, it was relatively straightforward. Basically, what clients wanted was to make sure that they weren't overstepping themselves and issuing what was the equivalent of a share. So we would issue our opinions uh, with regards to, to, to just confirm that there was a utility in their token, that their token was not um, a utility token, and that we would take care of their private sale agreements and stuff like that, um, their pre-ICOs, and, and we would just take them through the entire process. Now, uh, because regulation hasn't changed all that much, that entire process, which I've just described, hasn't really changed all that much. However, what I have um, observed, and, and as I'm sure you are well aware as well, is that there has been a move more towards completing your funding during the pre-ICO stage so that there's never ever a public ICO. So, and I, I, that's a trend I, I've, I've been noticing as well. So, and as a result, so the legal burdens that would otherwise ensue if you were doing a public uh, ICO are no longer um, as pressing especially if you're doing a sort of a private ICO placement. It's almost like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm buying a, a set of tools from you, a hammer, a nail, a chainsaw, whatever. You know, it, it's, it's just a private entreaty. So that's what, that's what I'm seeing. Okay. And uh, so the new hustle in town is STOs or security token offerings. Yes, yes. yes. Um, and that seems to be sort of the buzzword in the last sort of couple of weeks or last month or so. I think it's really picked up. Um, what do you make of STOs and, and do you think, you know, I, I guess the involvement of lawyers would only increase with STOs sort of coming more into the picture. Do you have any thoughts? Well, to me, I liked 
you know, I, I get it. Um, ICOs, there were a lot of scams in, in 2017. That's, that's just the reality. There, there were. But for as many scams as there were, there were also many, many good companies who were genuinely trying to build out a product, who were generally, genuinely trying to build out a utility token. Now, when it comes to STOs, I feel that we, and again, it's linked to the point about ETFs. We're sort of like, we're chasing our own tails, you know. The whole purpose, I mean, let's just go back to why the blockchain exists. Why does Bitcoin exist? It was because we wanted to shed all of the different structures that were in place uh, in the financial services industry, which made it sort of like an insider's club. So either, you know, if you want to take part in a pre-IPO, you had to know someone. So it was, it was a very uh, secular, it was a very, um, it was a closed off uh, way for, for the rich, essentially, to get richer. And, and the ethos of, of, the, of the blockchain and Bitcoin was that, no, you know what, everybody should have an opportunity. And that was what ICOs were in, in, in a sense. Of course, uh, as with anything that, that where you, you meet irrational exuberance, as uh, Alan Greenspan once said, it, it, you're going to get to that stage where, where valuations just completely go out of whack in terms of what their relative value uh, is or was so when we go to STOs I think in, in many ways um, we're sort of uh, yes I, I can see the, the argument for STOs um, in, in terms of efficiency but are we really going a step forward are we going a step in the right direction because it's, it, it feels to me as if with security tokens again we're looking for, for our next silver bullet something to raise valuations you know because ETFs are not working okay and, and ETFs what is that a function of ETF is actually from the traditional capital markets. It, it didn't exist when, when, when Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever they were, or him or he, her was, it didn't exist. Um, you know, they didn't envisage such a, a situation where they would be issuing ETFs. And now we're looking at security tokens. And what is the security token? It's a form of a share, a form of, of equity. So I, I'm not sure that we're necessarily taking ourselves forward. I, I, can, I can see the argument for that. And I, I think it's a valid argument. But um, it, it, in terms of whether or not this is the right way to go, Let's not forget, are we undermining the existing capital market structure? Um, are we necessarily adding value or are we just distracting? And I, I think that that's something that we need to be you know, introspective about. We have to ask ourselves, are we adding value by issuing out a security token? Is that something, is there another way? Because then there are other options as well. There's second market, there's OTC markets, which have existed in NASDAQ for decades, you know, well before uh, the need for a security token. Are we just... Is it a solution in, in search of a problem is what I would ask. And I, I'm not necessarily convinced. Okay. I think those are very interesting views. I mean, my personal opinion is that I think the good thing about one positive thing that I see about uh, STOs or just tokenization of assets in general is the amount of uh, liquidity that it generates and how much liquidity is freed up. And I, I think that's sort of the value in, in my opinion. But I hear your thoughts in terms of, you know, whether do we really need STOs and, and whether we're just undermining the current capital market structure. So those are very interesting thoughts. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your sure. other venture, which is keeping you busy these days. You're the general counsel for a, and a general partner um, for a, a crypto hedge fund or a quantitative trading yeah. fund. Um, which yep. is a highly unenviable position to be in. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> want to be the general counsel um, for a crypto fund. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, could you talk a little sure. bit more about the fund and what your role entails as general counsel? Okay, so Compton Hughes is basically a, a quantitative uh, cryptocurrency uh, firm. And what we do is, unlike uh, traditional 
funds where they accept fiat currency, we only accept cryptocurrency. So the story behind the fund was we were actually basically trading for ourselves because we, we ran a payment, we run a, actually we run a payment gateway which uh, links merchants, uh, fiat on-ramps for merchants uh, and who, for, for people who have large pools of cryptocurrency and who want to sort of buy items, uh, luxury items, they typically are, uh, typically are like uh, works of art, you know, luxury cars, uh, property, yachts and that sort of thing. And they needed a, a way to do that. And as a payment gateway, we needed to find a way to hedge sort of the volatility inherent inside cryptocurrencies uh, to, so that we would still make uh, the, the fee from, from the, the transfer, but at the same time that we wouldn't be exposing ourselves unnecessarily to un, uh, unnecessary risk during the process. And it was, so we developed these automated algorithms to trade to protect ourselves. And it was during this process that we actually discovered that they were actually income generating. So we, we tweaked it to the buy side. So, sorry, to the sell side. So we were on the sell, uh, buy side initially and now we tweaked it to the sell side and we realized that actually there was a position for uh, set up for algorithmic trading and that and there were opportunities there to sort of, uh, to, to adopt an, uh, a market agnostic approach towards trading cryptocurrencies. And we've been, you know, uh, we have been successful and the fund has returned, uh, I believe, as of today, it's, about, it's up about 50-51% um, over the last, and it's been in, in operation for about five, six months. Now, we had projected sort of a, a more conservative return, but we suspect that part of the reason that we've reached our, our annual target so quickly is because also that you know, the cryptocurrency markets don't, don't sleep. And as a result, we probably got there three times as fast. And as well as that, um, our algos trade about 100,000 times a day uh, on, on certain days. So that's, that's what the fund is. Now, as the general counsel, what I do is I make sure that, you know, we are legal, of course. Um, I also look towards, and, and right now the fund is expanding. So we've been uh, desperately searching uh, for a fund administrator for a long time and we've, we've managed to find some good partners. It's not that easy. Uh, that I'll explain to you why because there are a few barriers. First of all, uh, not all fund administrators will want to deal in crypto. I understand that. And then those that do want to deal in crypto uh, may not necessarily want to deal with a fund that trades the volume of trades that we do. Because if we're talking about 100,000 trades a day on average, sometimes you, you can go up to a million easy a month. And not all fund administrators can handle that. But fortunately, we have good partners and they are, they are able to handle that. So what I do is I keep abreast and of all the latest regulations, be it uh, in Singapore, as well as in uh, New York, as well as in London and all the major financial capitals in the world, uh, just so that we are constantly above board. We're constantly protecting the interests of our clients. We ensure that our, our clients, uh, especially from a tax perspective, because some clients will be from uh, more tax-sensitive jurisdictions, and we ensure that they're all taken care of uh, from a legal perspective. So that's basically on a day-to-day -day basis. And I also sit on the the risk management uh, panel in, within the firm as well. So I ensure that the risk managers are consider legal risks as well, because while they manage trading risks, I also oversee uh, legal risks of the fund as a whole. So that's what I do basically on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. And what are the kinds of, so let's talk about the fund a little bit. What are the kinds of strategies sure. that the, uh, the, the algos are deploying? Uh, like high level, are you able to speak about it? Sure, of course. Yeah, I, I can, I can speak, speak about it at a high level. So basically what we do is uh, we do statistical arbitrage. That's one of our core strategies. 
And statistical arbitrage is just basically looking at convergence and divergence when we have overlaid certain um, patterns and certain models. And, and we, when we look and when there's a, a divergence in prices, that's when we start to accumulate positions, be it on the sell side or a buy side. And then once those positions start to converge, we exit out of those positions and we make very, very small trades. Uh, they can be as small as uh, half an ether to, to one tenth of an, an, an ether. Or, and we generally trade many, many, many times. Now, um, this, there's the market making strategy as well. And again, these are not strategies which are new. These are strategies which already exist in the capital markets. The reason why it's lucrative to do it in the crypto markets is because in terms of trading fees, there is no minimum transaction size. So we can do really, really small trades. And if you keep your, your bands really, really tight, say instead of like 3%, you just put it down to like say 1%, for instance, you can just make off the spreads and it's sufficient. It's almost like um, what, what Warren Buffett likes to call cigarette butt investing, where you just, you know, you, you, when, when somebody stubs out a cigarette butt, sometimes it's just one last toke in, in the cigarette. And when you do that 100,000 times a day, you don't just end up with a, a pack of cigarettes, you end up with a whole a warehouse full of cigarettes. So, and that's sort of the, the strategies that we take. So what we're looking for is little inefficiencies and we're sort of like just picking pennies off the floor and eventually those pennies add up. And especially when it's automated, you don't really have to, we, the, the strategy initiates the trade, but once, the, once we've initiated the trade, the robots take over. And so I know some other funds which are trying to do or doing something sure. similar along the lines of what you guys are doing. Are there any particular strategies or particular things that you're doing that set you guys apart, that make you guys unique? Well, I don't know for a fact what their exact strategies are. I know what makes our strategy unique. Uh, I'm not sure if, it's, if you can even call it unique, but we were one of the first few to do it. And because it was, never in, uh, it was never intended for that purpose, it takes into account certain considerations which a fund which was specifically designed just purely for trading arbitrage uh, may, may not have taken into account. So that, that has helped us as well. We, obviously, we have a good team. Um, we, we've built really good algos, we've built really good uh, bots to trade as well, and, and we've plug, been plugging into these APIs for a long time. And, we, and it also helps that we've had a long uh, relationship with all the exchanges that we, we trade on. So in terms of what our, the, the greatest benefit, I would say, probably uh, of our, our strategy is that we are extremely conservative. So we, you know, as opposed to other funds, which may or may not, uh, emphasize how much you could gain. What we always stress is what is the risk that we that we take, and so we take a very stern and very strict and disciplined view towards risk management. So even small things like um, we don't in, in we don't hold more than say ten percent of a, any particular trading pair, so that any the any loss in any one pair will not affect the overall portfolio. We try to uh, limit portfolio risks to no greater than ten percent, and then there are certain measures to stop loss in in situations like that. And where we would rather, you know, take a smaller loss as opposed to, to taking a bigger risk and then for a smaller gain. So our risk management, I would say, is probably one of our core strengths uh, in, in this space. And, and again, we've, we adopt a, a, rel a relatively institutional approach towards the whole trading, uh, trading strategy. So that's probably something that because the cryptocurrency markets are so new, I think it's something that will take time to, to get up to speed. But we expect that it will come. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your role as general counsel as well. Since you take, you mentioned that you take subscriptions in crypto 
Um, mm-hmm. How do you go about ensuring protecting uh, investor interests? Um, I mean, okay. like, like so, what does the what does the process look like? I mean, like, is there is it sort of akin to uh, how you would subscribe into a fund in the traditional markets, or like, is there any? Yes. Diff- okay. Um, it, it's very much yeah. It's very much like how you would uh, subscribe into a fund as well. And even though strictly speaking, uh, it's it's not absolutely necessary to do so. We do do it. Um, we we do the typical KYC and AML as per any other fund structure as well and so what we will do is we'll do a chain analysis of the source of the crypto to ensure that it's not tainted funds that they were not stolen that they were not associated with any particular uh, hack for instance and generally of course we do do due diligence on the client themselves and then once they do that then the contracts and everything it's pretty much standard as, as per any other fund you would expect so that's the only real difference is that instead of uh, you know when you do uh, KYC and AML as to the source of funds that the number, a normal fund would do. Uh, they do it through a bank. What we do is we just uh, check it on the blockchain, which we've been doing for a while. Right. And um, so I understand that you do KYC, AML, but you're sort of a money manager as well. So how do you ensure that your fund doesn't run into trouble with the regulators? Have you had any sort of interaction with the regulators regarding setting up this fund? Or like, what is, yeah. like what's, the, what's, what's your thought process? And what was the kind of like, how did you set up this fund? Well, we set it up as a company in, in Singapore, and that's how we, we started it off. And now what we're looking to do is we're looking to offshore the, the company and, and the fund uh, to a Cayman structure as, as it has been advised by a fund administrator, either to Cayman, Bermuda, or another offshore uh, fund structure. Uh, it's interesting you should mention that. Um, there are opportunities as well to do it in Singapore. Um, I believe that the Business Times just covered that uh, today where they are allowing variable capital companies, which are very, very similar to some of the, the fund structures that we've become very familiar with in places like the Caymans, Dublin and Luxembourg. And what that does is it actually helps in the distribution uh, in, and reduction of capital. It also helps to ensure that you know, things like financial statements and register of members will not be publicly retrievable, which is sometimes quite important to uh, fund clients uh, just for privacy reasons. So, um, and that's what we've done. Um, in terms of the regulator, we, we have queried and from our understanding, because of the status of cryptocurrencies are uh, ambiguous, as long as we make declarations with regards to tax and that kind of thing, the regulator has been extremely supportive. And I have to say once again, that it, from that perspective, uh, the MAS is, it, it, it's a very enlightened institution led by, by very enlightened people. Okay, you mentioned tax, uh, and this was something I wasn't—I didn't have on my list to ask you. But since you mentioned it, um, sure. How are how are you approaching the issue of tax? What is what tax purview? I'm presuming you would come under the Singapore tax purview, but what what has been the interaction with the tax authorities, or how do you approach uh, taxation for a fund like yours? Well, okay. So it's interesting that you should mention uh, you should mention that we have actually decided to 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 work closely with the tax authorities and basically we declare uh, because as what we do is just like how in in a, in a traditional hedge fund structure we 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 take a performance fee and a management fee but unlike uh, in, in in a traditional fund structure th- those fees are claimed in crypto and not fiat. So what we do is we make a declaration to the, the tax authorities that, you know, we've got such and such. This is the approximate valuation. And then 
and then from there we work with the tax authorities to, to see because i don't um at least from a singapore's uh perspective at least there, there aren't capital gains taxes and stuff like that so the sort of tax status of of uh, the income that the fund receives is not entirely clear at this point in time. And I, but I believe that there will be greater clarity in, in the coming days. Uh, in terms of our clients, each of them, uh, especially if they come from certain uh, jurisdictions, then they need to get advice in terms of tax from their own uh, tax advisors. And we usually link them up to some of our existing uh, service providers and, and they, they advise them as to how to deal with the tax. But it's a good question. Um, honestly, right now we are erring on the side of caution. So uh, when it comes to tax, we prefer to to you know be upfront, and declare ahead of time, and then and then take take sort of take uh, instruction from there. Okay. Yeah. Um. I was following. Uh, I mean, I I've been connected on multiple uh, social media platforms. I sure. saw that you recently wrote an article exploring security tokens and stable coins, and kind of comparing the two, and you know just exploring um, where the whole ecosystem is headed in the context of um, these two topics. Could you give a quick sure. summary of the point that you were trying to drive in your post? Yeah. So basically what I was trying to say is that I, I didn't want, well, it's not so much what I wanted, but I was of the view that I think this whole fixation with uh, security tokens, um, it's not helping. It's, it's not the silver bullet that I think that, 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 we're going to find out that it, it's not the silver bullet that we're looking for. And, and that's not to say that stable coins are. It's just that, look at it from a merchant's perspective. How are we going to get greater crypto adoption? If we're going to get greater crypto adoption, we need to ensure stability. We need to ensure that, you know, that the guy on the, on the, the corner mom and pop store who's selling you a, a bar of chocolate, he needs to know that the Ethereum, the, the point, point something of an Ethereum that you're paying him, it's going to be worth that amount in terms of goods and services that you can buy tomorrow. It can't be that today he, he buys, you know, you, you pay one Ethereum and tomorrow the value of Ethereum versus the US dollar just shoots through the roof. In, in which case it sort of, it, it provides a disincentive for people to spend the cryptocurrency. So to, to me, adoption is the key. And that's my opinion. And that was the sort of the thrust and parry of my piece, which was that, Adoption is what is going to push this industry beyond that tipping point and where it can't just be a bunch of like uh, yourself and myself, you know, it just can't be always us moving around the same space and going through to the same seminars, you know, constantly going to the same conferences because, you know, and I'm sure you know this because, you know, we, we go to, to so many of the same sort of events and we end up seeing always the same people. It needs to move beyond that. And in order to move beyond that, I'm not, I'm not convinced that security tokens are the way to go because again, to me, that's just like ICO part two. It's just, uh, you know, another sort of uh, step in that direction where you allow more speculators to come in as opposed to a stable coin, which actually could help to promote adoption. Look, even though if I'm, I'm having a stable coin, I'm saying it's backed by some asset, then, then that would provide sort of the surety and sort of the confidence for, for merchants or for users or for retailers so sort of like, you know, to just dip their toe in, in, into, the, into the pool. I'm not saying jump straight in. Try a stable coin. You know what? There's no harm. It, it's worth one is to one. And that's how you want to get them into the ecosystem. And I think in terms of adoption and uh, greater growth, that's how we, we, we could do it. And that's how we should do it. And that, that's the, the, what we should be pursuing. And, and, it's, and it's, it should come as no surprise that Circle, which is backed by Goldman Sachs, is looking at stable coins. Because 
I'm sure they identified that that is the way forward to sort of uh, bring this to the to the global consciousness. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point, and and I really like that uh, viewpoint. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything that you'd sure. like to share with the audience that we may not have covered during the interview? Well, I it's interesting that you the last point we spoke about was uh, stable coins, and I just actually uh, wrote a piece about the hidden dangers of stable coins. Uh, it's on my Medium page. Um, you can go look look it up. Yeah, but, I'll link it up as well in the show notes. Yeah, great, thanks. And and what I I talked about is that you know again we have to look at things in what is the end goal. You know, in, in law school, what we've always taught is that when we do something, we need to, or we argue something, we need to always fall back on first principles. What is it that we're trying to achieve here? Now, if, if it's the goal to just create more speculation and to constantly churn up volatility in prices as, as profitable as that may be for funds like mine, that shouldn't be the ultimate goal of the space. The ultimate goal of the space is, is to provide a viable alternative for the unbanked, to provide a seamless sort of transfer of value for, 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 uh, for people across the globe without as much slippage as we currently experience, you know, no more so high transaction fees from all the, the financial intermediaries and so to decentralize and redistribute sort of the gears of wealth. And if there's no point in having sort of the top, like 90% of the value of of say any particular crypto, like say for instance, Bitcoin, for instance, in the top 10 addresses. And that doesn't do anything and doesn't add value to, to the world we live in. If we wanted to do that, well, let's just stick to the traditional financial markets. They've done that very well. If, if the next millennium, the next century is going to be one where we return power sort of, and we sort of uh, redistribute and, and uh, the resources of this world in a more equitable fashion, then this is what we have to be looking for. We have to be looking for more greater adoption, ease of adoption, and to build the infrastructure that will enable that to happen. And I think that's, that should be the focus. All right. I think that's a great note to end the interview. Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time out to come speak to us. No, was, thanks. Was, thanks so much, Trisha. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you on. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram, and subscribe to our newsletter on decrypt.asia. This is your host, Tashar. Thank you for listening.